says, above all. So there's something uh, significant about that instruction. So I think those are kind of the two biggest ones in the passage. But what other commands do you see as you look in there? Yeah, don't grumble. Establish your heart there in verse 8. Mm. Yeah, consider the blessings of being steadfast. Yeah. Yeah, so find these examples and pay attention to them. Yeah. I think we're, we're getting close to noting them all there. The first command right off the bat there in verse number 7 is to be patient. And uh, patience is, is, a, is a concept we're used to in our language. It's not like we need to delve into some uh, nuances of the, the Greek to figure out what patience mean. It, it, it means waiting for a long time or the ability to wait for a long time. Uh, with a good attitude. <laughs> because if you're waiting for something and you're impatient, the thing doesn't come any faster, so you still end up waiting for it, but you're not patient. But so the, the patients would have the ability uh, to wait with, with some measure of a good attitude about the fact that you have to wait for something to take place. He's going to get specific about what we're waiting for in just a second. But this idea of patience is used in um, Hebrews uh, 6.15 to describe how Abraham had to wait with patience, or it's actually commending him because he already did it. He did wait with patience for the promises that were given to him. You read the life of Abraham, his times of patience were lengthy, and some elements of the promise, he went to the grave without them being fulfilled, but that didn't mean that God would fail to fulfill them. It just means it wasn't happening in Abraham's lifetime. And so his whole life had to be marked by this same kind of patience or the ability to wait for a long time. In uh, 2 Peter 3.9, patience describes how God is patient uh, to save his people over a period of time. God is uh, patient toward us, not willing that any should perish. And uh, uh, Peter said that in the first century. Look, God is patient because people are being saved. We now know that that patience is at least 2,000 years long, over which God is patient for people to be saved uh, over a long period of time, and he waits as those people are saved. Here, the calling for the believers or the brothers is to be patient for something specific, and it is the coming of the Lord there in verse number 7. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. It's repeated in verse number 8. Be patient, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And in verse 9, the judge is standing at the door. Uh, so we, we want to consider what is the coming of the Lord. Of the Lord. What are we waiting for? Um, and it, 
It's the arrival of, of Jesus, the words parousia, his coming, his arrival. And as you read through Scripture, particularly the New Testament, although not exclusively, uh, um, maybe just more clearly in the New Testament, you can find it all over the Old as well, the arrival of Jesus has these characteristics that we as saints should be excited about. Um, Paul tells, I think it's Timothy, that there's a crown for those who love his appearing. Um, and that would be loving in an a anticipatory sense. So it's not just the people who are standing there when he shows up and go, wow, I love that. Like, it's not just that. It's, it's delighting and loving it beforehand as you wait for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So we as Believers are excited and anticipate this coming of the Lord. And if we think of the coming of the Lord in the, in the broadest sense, um, that there's, there's a lot of different things that are associated with it. And when I say the broadest sense, then I mean if we think about the coming of the Lord broadly without nailing down how it all works. Uh, like like some, some ideas considering the snatching up to be with the Lord and his arrival to be king are, are uh, intertwined. And so without, par- without parsing those things out and just thinking about when Jesus shows up, what are the kind of things we can be excited about happening? What should we be anticipating? There's a lot of different things, and James gets into some of them. Um, one of... The things associated with his coming comes out in verse number nine. And what would that be? Be patient. Jesus is coming. It's all going to be solved. Right. Yes. And we're going to get to that in in just a few minutes, too. uh, Is is that he's giving these commands to be patient because he's like, there's these circumstances, and because of these circumstances, be patient for the coming of the Lord. Therefore, be, be patient. But you have uh, his coming here associated with uh, judgment. Um, and this is why I say we have to think of his coming uh, at, at least we have to think of it in the broadest sense because he's telling believers to be patient for his coming when he judges, uh, which would be his uh, returning in, in power and great glory. So regardless of how you see the snatching up of the saints and his coming, at least in this passage, we're told that we should be patient for that judgment element of it when he sums up everything and when he resolves that suffering that we're under and, and he sets things right as, as the judge. So, so regardless of how you place things on a timeline, we as believers are still supposed to anticipate and be excited and thus be patient while we wait for this time to arrive, this coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, it, it means you have hope regardless of those circumstances that the, the highs and lows that there may be. It means you're not overwhelmingly discouraged by them, where it just takes all of the air out of out of you because of troubling circumstances. Like you know, God has these good things still on the agenda that you wait for. So I think it's going to change your attitude and your demeanor and your behavior even toward other people. The grumbling thing comes in, and it's not totally unrelated, right? 
So his, his, the, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is associated with judgment. The coming of the Lord Jesus Christ is associated with the resurrection of the dead in 1 Corinthians 15, that we, uh, we know that at his coming, the dead will be raised, and it's associated with the snatching up of the saints in 1 Thessalonians 4 and in 1 Corinthians 15, the dead in Christ who are raised, and then we who are alive and remain to be caught up together with the Lord uh, at his, his coming. So there's, uh, uh, his coming is a, a two-edged sword in that there is rescue and judgment. And so it, it matters which side of that two-edged sword that you are on. But, uh, so taking that back, though, to that therefore that John mentioned uh, already, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. And the reason why these saints needed to be uh, encouraged to be patient is because they were in circumstances of suffering. Remember, that's how the book started. Um, I know, but count it all joy, my brothers, when you fall into trials of various kinds. Um, so this has been at play ever since he got done saying, hey, my name's James, I'm writing you a letter, count it all joy. <laughs> okay, so from the beginning of the book, this theme of suffering has been in play, and here there's the, the instruction to be patient in the midst of that suffering. And right beforehand, he, in, in 5, 1 through 6 that we covered last time, was suffering at the hands of those with power and with wealth who take advantage of the people who are under them and, and even condemn and murder righteous people. And perhaps some of these saints were facing the, the, that very sort of a severe and potentially discouraging circumstances in their life. Maybe their boss was defrauding them, or maybe they were suffering at the, at the hands of someone in authority over them. And in the midst of it, James goes, therefore, be patient. So this is related to the injustices of the world and the suffering of the world at the hands of wicked men. Um, and, and perhaps it even goes further into chapter 4 or even just sort of the book broadly speaking that this, this life is temporary in nature and we are not in control and we have the calling to be patient in the midst of it. So you could say he's saying, since things go sideways in this world, which they do, you need to be patient for the coming of the Lord. Mm-hmm. And, and that's exactly where I want to go, is to, to, to focus more on that double-edged nature of the coming of the Lord in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. So back up a few pages there to 2 Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. Paul here, uh, so we had James, here's Paul, emphasizing this same dual nature of the coming of the Lord. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. He writes to suffering saints, as will come out of these verses. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. So there we've got it. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you. So we have both of them. Judgment on the afflictor, 
but relief for you who are believers and suffering affliction in the midst of this world. Repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. So at his coming, God is the one who brings justice to the wicked, including those who may be causing believers to suffer. And God is the one who brings relief to the saints. And James makes application of that truth with the command to be patient, to be encouraged, to stand strong as you wait for this to take place. He brings in an illustration in verse number 7, an illustration of a farmer. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until he receives the early and the latter rains. Farmers have to wait for rain, especially if you're an agrarian society like theirs without modern irrigation. You can't just pipe it in when things get dry. You're totally dependent on whether it rains or not. And so the farmer has no recourse except to wait for the rain. And here, James says that they, they have to be patient about it. There's nothing to do but wait for the rain to come because uh, no human being can manipulate the timing of the rain or whether or not it arrives. Um, there's, there's no way to hurry it up. Nothing to do but, but to wait. Now, we know that even a farmer doesn't actually have nothing to do but wait. A farmer's got lots of things to do, but when it comes to the rain, he just has to wait for it to come. And it's the same for us. Like We, we cannot hurry up the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We can't somehow like shake the, the hourglass so it goes faster. Um, that, that's not something that we, that we command, but um, we do have a calling for the things that we're supposed to do in this life. We, we have things to do as we wait, but our waiting is all we can do as far as the timing of when he arrives and the hope that comes when he does arrive. We can't move him any closer. closer. So, so James gives this illustration. See how the farmer waits for the, the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and, and late rains. And here's the instruction from that. You also be patient. So look at this farmer. He has to wait for rain. Y'all be patient like that. Yeah, he just has to wait for the rain. You just have to be patient and wait um, even if it's a little stressful. Does a farmer just sit there and go like, eh, if the rain comes, eh, doesn't really matter. No, he's kind of like checking the weather every day, <laughs> hoping that it comes. I think a little house on the prairie because Paul Ingalls always gets burned whenever he goes in on the new crop that's finally going to make it big this year, and then the hail kills it or whatever. Um, the, the farmer waits 
attentively, like he's really paying attention to it, but he can't hurry it. And so we have to be patient for the coming of the Lord. Be patient like that farmer who waits for the rain. The next um, command follows right after that, you also be patient. The next one is to establish your hearts. Establish your hearts. That's to be steady and stable or to just stand immovable with, with confidence. I think of uh, sword and sandal movies where you got guys in armor fighting each other and the, the commander always gives this passionate speech stand, right, and get, gets his guys all, all hyped up, that they need to stand their ground. And the call isn't just an empty command to stand. Stand because I said so. The, the, the call is always stand because you need to take heart from within. Your, you, your heart needs to be in it. Be courageous. Take heart. Remember why we're fighting here. Remember the the nation who stands behind us, remember our fallen comrades, whatever the commander, however eloquent he is, to, to encourage his soldiers that they need to take heart from within and to stand so that the line holds. Be steady. And here, the, the establishing your hearts, that command to be steady, it is a command. So it's something that we are called to do, like see to it that your heart is steady and establish it. And don't let your heart just be moved and shaken all over by the things that, that happen around you to where you're unsteady. Instead, you need to be steady. So here, it's a command. And yet, interestingly, if we look elsewhere in Scripture, we see that that establishing of your hearts is something that God does like in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, where he tells the saints in Thessalonica, now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through Christ, comfort your hearts and establish them, the same idea there, establish them in every good work and word. So the established heart is both something that you're called to do as a believer, but also something that really only God can do. That he's the only one who really can hold us steady. This is also not an establishing of your heart. That is a call to just stand there forever. Um, it it's a, it's a last stand, it's a, it's a, a be established and immovable, but it's a, it's a last stand because if you hold out long enough, the hero shows up. So it's not a suicide mission or a, a hopeless endeavor to be steady and patient. Rather, this is a call to stand until he arrives. Establish your hearts. And what's the hope? The coming of the Lord is at hand. You're not going to have to stand there forever. Instead, the coming of the Lord is at hand. It's, it's near. He's, he's going to arrive. And we know that that principle of him being at hand is entirely uh, uh, subjective from our point of view. 
Okay, we don't get to set how long we think at hand is. God does. And to be honest, it's been a while. But the Lord has his timetable. He has his purposes. He has his plans. Abraham went to the grave waiting. We may go to the grave waiting, but the wait is still not indefinite. His coming is still at hand. He will arrive. In Hebrews chapter 10, uh, the author of Hebrews says, You have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. And he has these familiar words, for yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. And we don't know the timetable, but the truth stands. The coming one will come, and he's not going to delay. Just a little while, just a little while, stand. And if you have time this afternoon, um, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 39 would be a good meditation on, on even what James is talking about. Hebrews 10, 19 through 39 uh, digs into that and kind of even expands more than we are this morning on this principle of being steady as we wait for the coming of our Lord. The next command is in verse number 9. Do not grumble against one another. <laughs> Do not grumble against one another. This is a reminder um, that the coming of the Lord is not only a motive for patient waiting, but it's also a motive to act properly in the meantime. Act properly in the meantime, because when he shows up, then then hearts are going to be revealed. Everything is going to be exposed. So it is a rescue, but it's also this unveiling. And those things that you are doing that um, say you were grumbling against your neighbor, the Lord shows up and that's exposed. Uh, say you were living your life in some manner that wasn't pleasing to God, the Lord shows up and it's exposed. So it's, it's this great rescue, but it's also, uh, for lack of a better word right now, it's also incriminating. It, all, it, it, it opens everything up. It lays everything out as far as we're not going to be able to hide from the Lord in his appearing. And here the, the command to, be, uh, to not grumble is because the judge is standing at the door. He's just about to arrive, so don't be acting in a manner that you wouldn't want to be acting when the judge shows up, because he will, and you'll be evaluated for it. The judge is standing at the door. I, I think of, and I'm and I'm I'm reading into it. This isn't you know a, a dive into the deep the the deep Greek, but uh, if I, I could stand at the door outside my kids kids room and I can hear him doing what's wrong in there, and then I can pop in. <laughs> right, the the judge is is right there. He's he's near, and so this command for us to consider our behavior as we wait, and here it's interpersonally. So don't grumble against one another is motivated by the fact that the judge is about to arrive and our works will be exposed. So we want to consider how we're acting in the meantime. Grumbling here is something that we would consider to be a fairly insignificant sin. A lot of times in the Bible, it's just translated as groaning or sighing. If you think about that, don't groan or sigh, grumble against your brother. 
he does something irritating and you go, and you walk away. Like, that's all that it is. It's just this, this attitude of selfishness and despising your brother. It's a type of complaining. And we, would put, we, in our human scale, would put it fairly low on the scale, like grumbling, yeah, so I, and you walk away like, that doesn't seem that horrible. And yet here, it's a direct command from the Lord to, to don't grumble against one another in this way. It's just a simple type of complaining. And James doesn't elaborate on it and get into the details of the ways you aren't supposed to view your brother. He just, he just says not to do it. Don't grumble against your brother because the, the judge is at hand. He's at the door. He's right there. So consider your relationships with the people who you are around and uh, don't be selfish. Yeah, yeah. So our scale is all off if we would consider a little bit of impatience or a little bit of... of uh, we're saying God is not doing what we want, uh, mm-hmm. we're Right. Just that little bit of dissatisfaction uh, speaks profound things about where our heart is oriented, whether we're being patient and loving God and loving other people or whether it's self-centered, huh, and uh, we're thinking about ourselves not submitted to God's will, not submitted to the circumstances that he's placed us in. So he gives another example, and here it's a command as well. Take the prophets, or to consider the prophets. It's another command, and we're told to uh, make an effort to think about the illustrations that are exposed in Scripture about suffering and about patience, and to think about them so that they can inform how we handle sufferings. Consider the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord as an example of suffering and patience, he says. So they suffered, they were patient, you should learn from them. The shortcut on this would be to go to Hebrews chapter 11 and read about the saints and how they endured in faith. But even if you're going to understand that hall of fame in Hebrews chapter 11, you got to go get the backstory in the Old Testament, right? So that's the shortcut, but don't be satisfied with the shortcut. If the, if the instruction here is to take the prophets, is to think about the prophets and their suffering, then go back and read the prophets and consider their suffering and learn how to endure. Um, Paul put it this way in Romans 15, whatever was written in former days, which would be the Old Testament, was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. It sounds like he's saying that one of the vast themes of the Old Testament or the vast purposes that God has for two-thirds of our Bible or three-quarters of it, whatever the page count is, that one of the big intentions God has for all of that is to help us to endure. And that's the same thing that James has in view here, that we need to take the prophets so that we learn how to suffer with patience, consider the outcome of their faith, consider how they live their lives in dependence on the Lord. Um, and as we, as we read the prophets, we'll recognize them for their steadfastness and we'll see how they were blessed by God as they endured suffering. And we'll see 
What a great example Jeremiah is. He was sharing the message that God gave him faithfully. He was, was just an instrument and he knew it. He knew God was responsible for the outcome of his preaching. He endured all sorts of this hardship. And we can see as we read something that already happened, we can perceive with, with the 2020 vision of looking backwards that God had good purposes in Jeremiah's deep suffering. And we can see God working in Jeremiah and how the Bible tells us that, that God worked it out. So we can kind of see behind the curtain when we read something that happened in the past. We can see God's purposes there. But we're also reminded that in the middle of it, Jeremiah didn't have that clarity. He didn't see how God worked it out. Jeremiah, as he was going through those things that we look backwards and go, wow, what a godly man to endure suffering and look what God did with it. When he was in the middle of it, he just had to be steadfast one day after the other without knowing all of that. And he was subject to the same frailty that we are. He was a human being. He probably had mornings where he woke up and he wondered if he could do this anymore. Um, he probably had dark and discouraging days where he actually had to be faithful in that moment without knowing the end. And that's where we are. We, when we're in the midst of suffering, we're in the middle of it. We don't perceive with clarity the, the end results. We don't know how God's going to carry it out. We don't know if we can do this any longer. So we have to consider what God's already done and he's shown himself faithful over and over and over and over and over. And these prophets stand out as examples of, of steadfast faithfulness. James doesn't go to, to Jeremiah. He goes to Job. Verse 11, Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job and have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So here's his example, Job. When you go read Job, you can consider the blessing of his steadfastness. You can, you can read the end of the book of Job, and you can read what God was doing uh, through it. You can read how Job was blessed for his steadfastness. And uh, you can see the purposes of the Lord. Purpose is, is telos. It's the end. Or that is the, the, the reason why God did something, where it all sums up and gets, gets uh, a bow put on it, and God reveals what he was doing. And in Job, you can go read, since we can read that after the fact, we can read about God blessing, and we can see the purposes that God had, the end for which Job went through those things, God's ultimate purposes and his plans, and we can see how in it the Lord is revealed as compassionate and merciful, and we learn that God can do the same things for us. That he has these ends, these purposes out here that he's going to work out, and that through it all, his character, here it's compassion and mercy, is revealed to us as we endure under it. We've already seen steadfastness in James, right? Consider those blessed who remain steadfast. It was one of the first things in the book. The trial of the faith produces steadfastness, which yields maturity. And so there, uh, James gives us part of that telos, part of the end. Your suffering is intended to bring you to 
maturity. And so we get some glimpse of the end game, of God's end game. And that's critical for us to have the ability to take heart, to uh, establish our hearts. Know and trust the end game that God has in mind, that his reason for your suffering. Um, any further thoughts on that before we go to verse 12? Yeah. Yeah. And 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 it's what you learn of God, how he's revealed to your heart in his perfect character along along the route. And that knowing of God is worth it. So the, the grumbling and the murmuring of the people of Israel mm-hmm. was an offense to God and brought judgment. Primarily because they did not see God as enough. Mm-hmm. He was not sufficient. That manna that he provided for their sustenance, they were bored with. And they wanted something more sensational. Mm-hmm. It, it, seems, it seems to carry that idea here that God is enough. Mm-hmm. Even, even if we don't see that reward at the end, we, we see that he is enough. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you're getting at something really important that it's not just about God's blessings, but about God himself. Yes. That to know God is the ultimate blessing that there is. Yes. So whatever it takes to get to that knowing of God, to that purpose, is really good. Yes. Yeah. It, and that, that's huge. It's like the difference between having a good relationship with your spouse and enjoying that and just being excited about your Valentine's Day present. <laughs> right? Like, it, we're not just seeking after the, things, the rewards that God gives us, but of knowing God himself and delighting in him and seeing him honored as the good God that he is, or is seeing his compassion and mercy put on display. How does he display his compassion and mercy? By putting it into action into difficult circumstances where people need compassion and mercy. That's where his compassion and mercy shows up, because it just operated. So he's seen as good in these things. Verse 12 seems like a hard turn. I don't think it is because he has another command here in view that has to do with um, you don't want to fall under condemnation. So Jesus is still showing up, and so you should not grumble. You should be patient. Also, don't swear. Above all, my brothers, he says, do not swear, uh, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath. But let your yes be yes and your no be no, 
so that you may not fall under condemnation. The issue here is integrity, is truthfulness. truthfulness. Um, It's about taking oaths. Uh, Here, uh, he's not talking about profanity. Uh, We casually think of cursing and swearing as sort of the same thing. Um, And profanity is immoral, but what he has in view here is taking oaths. And instead, a Christian should be marked by integrity such that a Christian's speech is always true. Uh, And I believe that that's expansive, that a Christian speech should always be true. Paul says that we should not do evil that good may come. So even if we think a little deception would work things out better right now, we're still supposed to be truthful. Um, The taking of an oath here, or swearing as, as James puts it, uh, implies that, that sometimes you may be the kind of person who, who knows if you're speaking the truth. But under circumstances, you go, I pinky promise that I'm telling the truth right now. Sometimes you don't know, but right now I am, trust me. <laughs> in those days? <laughs> Right. Being deceptive is, is also a matter of control because you, you are setting yourself up as the judge of, of, I perceive that circumstances will be better if I do this thing, and so I'm going to be deceptive and instead of trusting that God operates through integrity. I think that's a good observation, uh, Rick. So, so you, don't, you shouldn't be the kind of person who has to promise, hey, guys, trust me, really, I'm telling the truth right now. Um, I don't think this is telling us that if you're ever in a court and they say, could you put your hand on the Bible? Are you going to tell the truth, whole truth, nothing but the truth? And you go, no, I'm not going to take this oath. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know that we can say that that's the instruction here. The instruction is you are to be a person of integrity. And, and how so? So that your yes is yes and your no is no. Those are just regular average words that you use. Uh, sure, I'll do that. Do it. No, I'm not going to do that. Then don't be a person of integrity, such as when you say you're going to do something, you do, and when you say you won't, that you won't, and, and uh, just 
be honest in your speech so that you do not fall under condemnation. God says that we are responsible for all of your words. That we are responsible for all of our words. Matthew 12, 36, I tell you on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. By your words, you will be condemned. And that has to include um, the truth of our words. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Why? Well, essentially because the judge is at the door. His coming is near. The thing we're being patient for is going to happen. And when that does happen, when Jesus arrives, uh, your speech should be characteristic of a believer, should be characterized by integrity, by righteousness, by truth, so that when he arrives, you're not ashamed of your speech. You're not ashamed of your grumbling. You're not ashamed of your impatience. But instead, there's, there's com- commendation for those believers who live the Christian life with integrity. The, the big command, the big theme is the, that the Lord is coming back. And it's interesting that he teaches so much about the coming of the Lord here in, in a context where it's like a machine gun of 10 different commands. Like, do this and do this and do this and don't do this and this and this because Jesus is coming back. He's right there. His coming's near. He's at the door. He's going to show up. And so that, that heartens you to be established like, I can, I can be patient and wait. He's coming back. There's hope. But that also challenges our lifestyle every day. The Lord's coming back. Like, I should be behaving in the ways that he's instructed me to do because he's coming back. The king will arrive, and that arrival matters. It's sort of this thing that is just a constant reality and has been for 2,000 years. It's always been a reality that the believers are called to act because the Lord's coming back soon. Be patient and be righteous. Be patient. Don't grumble. Be patient and don't um, have disingenuous speech. We'll close there. We're going to finish James 5 next week before our break for Christmas. Um, Any further thoughts before we close in prayer this morning?